Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. Sorry for such a delay, but um, if you follow me on the social media, you might have noticed a few messages that I posted there. See, um, I've received my electric scooter, and I was driving with it, and uh, then a car smashed into me. A concussion, two broken ribs, and a bit of an issue with a, with a spine thingy later. Yeah, wasn't a nice, um, nice time to be alive, so to speak. The car kind of just drove away, and now I'm dealing with all the paperwork and everything. Also, I think I've caught a bit of a cold, or at least I can't speak very well, so sorry for um, missing out on, the, on a few apps. This is going to be a political one, by the way, but we're catching up on everything. Because, you know, uh, I have to pay the hospital bills, and I have material prepared for the Tunguska meteorite, and for the Soviet school program and everything. It's just that I finally um, feel well enough to actually sit down and, and talk inside the microphone and stuff. To be fair, previously sitting up pretty much hurt a lot, and it was a very bad feel, if you can imagine that one. If you guys, any of you have had broken ribs at any point of your life and some damage to your spine, you'll probably understand what I'm talking about here. Yeah, it wasn't nice. Also, thank you to everyone who's been supporting us during this period. Because uh, I know a lot of you saw I, the post on social media and some of you sent me your kind donations and thank you, that helped me pay the bills because even with our quite social healthcare, it's not free and that was a major, major punch to my finances. But, well, we're um, doing slightly better now. I just really want to wanna do this episode and all the other historical episodes this month so they'll be coming out on a bit of a rush schedule. More so than usual, but the thing is, I really need to get all the material out this month, which I had planned before, so as to, you know, be able to pay my bills next month. And also, I kind of don't want to stretch it out more than I need to. I need to get back into some sort of a working schedule, because, you know, if you spend a lot of a lot of days just sleeping on the bed and not being able to move, then it's um, quite hard to get back into the rhythm of your work and everything. However, well, I still am a huge proponent of electric scooters and everything electric and, and nature-friendly and everything. And um, 
I still think that it's a good idea. It's just that our infrastructure of, you know, those little bicycle paths, yeah, we're nowhere near the levels of Denmark or Netherlands or, or stuff like that. And apparently you can still just drive around with your electro scooter, obeying all the laws. And I know this sounds hipstery, but to be fair, some things are actually popular because they're quite good. Instead of, well, a lot of them, which are popular. However, I wouldn't call them particularly well-adjusted for the modern world, because we still have a lot of issues. And uh, one of those issues, probably the most important issue that I will be spending, well, quite likely all of the episodes time today talking about, is the elections in Russia. And I again have to say thank you to Medusa for this, because they kindly allow me to use their material, and if you want to read everything in full, go check them out. They and Lentaru and some of my contacts in Russia from Echo Moskvi and Doge have provided some nice material for you today because, oh boy, I can fully state that even though these were parliamentary elections and Russia is primarily a presidential republic, at least on paper they say so, they still carried a lot of meaning to, to them and it was definitely not an easy process because what we saw this year, in all the videos and everything, it was... The biggest fraud ever, and that's saying a lot since I already called the previous Putin's elections as the event firmly known as elections. But this year, this year it wasn't just stuffed ballot boxes. This was the year where actually the people had had to pull out... Again, I'm sorry about not my voice and how I speak. It's just that um, my head's still in a bit of a mess, but I can't delay this any further. And it still hurts. It's going to hurt probably until the end of the month, but, you know, trying my best here. However, this year it wasn't enough just to stuff the ballot boxes. This year they literally had to pull out ballots from the urns where they were thrown in, and there was massive cheating in the electoral voting and electronic voting, since uh, the elections also went on for three days. So, you know, ensuring proper people who were, like, overseeing all this matter, that didn't really work out well for them at all. And the real physical ballots, in a lot of cases we've seen videos where they were burnt up or destroyed by a chainsaw, no less. I mean, kind of seems to me that we're looking at some people who are quite hardcore fanatics of Warhammer 40k even, you know. But yeah, a lot of lot of fraud, a lot of weirdness, and uh, sadly, not enough surprises as one might wish for. Still, I'd rather like to have a look at all the situation and how all of this will impact the world going forward. But, of course, as usual, we'll, we'll start from the beginning. And again, we're, um, we're working a lot of things with the show, but hey, about that in future reps, please forgive me if this is a bit disconjointed or something. I'm getting back into the shape. However, not to delay any further, here we go. So, how did everything go? Well, what just happened was Russia 2021's parliamentary races, and, uh, well... The results are the following. United Russia maintained its supermajority, preserving its absolute control over the legislature. The Communist Party, KPRF, performed much better than it did five years ago, increasing its, their percentage, and the right-wing Liberal Democrats, which is funny because it's Zhirinovsky's party. Yeah, they are uh, super ultra-right-wing, they call themselves Liberal Democratic Party of Russia. You've probably heard of them if this isn't your first episode on the show. Just me remind you that Zhirinovsky is the guy who wants to nuke everything and everyone, and wants to turn the United States in a smoldering heap of ash pile. So, you know, that's the fun part. Uh, yeah, they've had one of their worst showings ever, and um, a lot of political analysts, you know, kind of 
correlate that to the fact that Zhirinovsky has been quite active into actually criticizing Putin's government into the past four years. Also, for the first time since Russia introduced party list proportional representation, there will be a fifth faction in the Gosduma. The fifth faction was businessman Alexei Nechayev's New People. Now, this is a group created with the Kremlin's help, uh, no surprises there. They're widely considered to be one of the Kremlin economic soft power hands. They're not nice people at all, obviously. Now, as the kind of all this dust around the election settles, and um, there's a lot of issues with it, the biggest unresolved questions surround um, their electronic voting system. How it affected results in and around Moscow, where basically online tallies catapulted the candidates endorsed by Mayor Sergei Sobyanin to victories against opposition candidates who led in offline counts of the votes. And we have to turn to this electronic voting because, well, we have a specialist for this thing. And also, if you kind of understand the fact that these elections, they weren't a single-day effort. They were a three-day effort, which happened also in the previous votes, or whatever, specifically uh, the ones on the constitutional voting. We'll, we'll get to that. But independent observation of these elections were basically impossible, really. And everything's a bit cringe. And again, no surprises here, but it's kind of important to understand how the massive fraud happened here and how everything was manipulated, so that you'd understand more if something else would happen in, say, your country where you live in. Such things are important, which is why I'm, I'm covering these, so to pull back the veneer of total nice democracy facade that, um, that Putin's regime is trying to enforce upon Russia, for which I feel very sad about. Anyhow, when releasing this week's voting results, Russia's Central Election Commission deliberately withheld statistical information from independent analysts, including myself, encoding the data published on its website to prevent researchers from downloading it automatically. The voting figures, now available through the commission, are encrypted, meaning that any numbers copied from the website will appear as alphabetic code and randomized characters when pasted into literally any external document or spreadsheet or beat Excel, Word, OpenOffice document, Google Docs, wherever. Statistician Sergei Spilkin was one of the first analysts to draw attention to the Election Commission's encoded numbers. He is a graduate of Moscow State University's physics department and an elections analyst. Spilkin has spent years downloading and studying data from the Central Election Commission in search of anomalies in Russia's turnout and voting results. Many political scientists and ordinary voters turn to his post-election graphs for objective assessments of falsifications in Russia. Medusa's special correspondent spoke to Spilkin as, you know, she was actually in Russia, and, you know, he gave some very interesting comments on this. One of the more important parts is the fact that last year, in July, on the final day of voting in Russia's referendum on their new constitution, which turned out to be basically the reconfirmation of Putin being the president for, well, another two terms, because they basically annulled his previous results, that involved a lot of this thing with, with electronic voting, and this is where the three-day vote was introduced. But another interesting thing happened in these elections where the Central Election Commission added a CAPTCHA to its main website, you know, the thing that checks in if you're not a robot, complicating independent researchers' ability to download large amounts of ballot data automatically. 
this weekend, Spitzkin states, analysts were prepared, and they quickly grabbed the early turnout numbers to get a preliminary picture of what was happening. Spitzkin told Medusa, quote, The picture of fraud is almost the same as it was in 2016, although the real modal turnout was 3-5% higher in these elections than it was five years ago. In other words, even when downplaying the precincts with abnormally high voter participation, the most frequently recorded turnout in the 2021 parliamentary elections was higher than in 2016. Researchers also found the same suspicious asymmetry present five years ago in the peaks of turnout and votes for United Russia through the right tail in the graph for this weekend's results. This was shifted even more to the right, meaning that Russia's party of power performed even better this year where turnout was highest. See, that's the thing. Wherever turnout was higher, United Russia performed best, which makes no sense, because as the turnout grew, the percentage of votes for the Putin's party grew, which literally shows that, yeah, yeah, we stopped the ballots. Because, you know, that's a logical explanation, and this is how elections work out, because, for example, Ramzan Kadyrov won his place as the governor in Chechnya with 99.37% of the votes, and he was kind of kindly told by Putin previously that, you know, his 99.95% is a bit much, so, you know, you should uh, you should probably, you know, cut down on the cheating just a bit, j- just a smidgen, right? So his now exact vote is 99.36%, whereas even getting anything above 60% is considered a major landslide victory, in any truly democratic country, but that's normal countries that we're talking about, and, uh, well, not specifically Chechnya, which is a, well, fun place to be in, specifically if you're uh, any form of minority, obviously. Based on the collected data, Spielkin estimates that the election workers falsified the lion's share of the ballots United Russia claimed in the proportional representation voting this weekend. He claims that it will be more than half of the votes that they received. I wouldn't be even surprised that they do more, because, yeah, um, with their percentage? Oh boy. Anything's possible if you believe it hard enough. I, I guess that's how, that's how they worked, really. They even received published material in video form, no less, where people who were literally working in some of those, you know, places where you could cost your vote in the election centers or something, which are usually positioned at schools and libraries and whatever local or central buildings you have. Yeah, uh, the workers there even got instructions about the result that they need to receive and how to achieve it. It's like a total party program and um, everything's completely planned once again. It's kind of weird, though, because Russia's Central Election Commission introduced another online innovation this year, encoding voting results in order to work researchers trying to export the data for analysis. Spitkin says these efforts by the commission are doomed. Quote, Those who are interested in the results can draw on greater intellectual resources. The qualified people busy with this fight will eventually overpower the election commission. On the IT website Haber, for example, someone already developed a script that repairs the encrypted data on each page as it loads. Now, Spielkin also declares that it's not quite what we need for automatic collection, but it's not so bad either. In Belarus last year, you know, Belarus, the nice country that we're uh, huge fans here of, 
The opposition crowdsourced data collection, but Spielkin warns that this approach is vulnerable to outside meddling. Quote, a single ill-intentioned agent could noticeably spoil the entire results, end quote. Ideally, Spitkin says, Russia's Central Election Commission will simply learn not to hide its numbers from the Russian public. In the past year, however, state officials have been doing precisely the opposite. Stanislaw Ratsinski, a researcher at the watchdog Golos, recently noticed changes to the Election Commission's bylaws that remove the language that required the agency to facilitate outsiders' automatic data collection. In 2020, this led to the previously mentioned CAPTCHA on the Commission's website. This year, voting results became read-only. One reason officials keep trying these tricks, guesses Spielkin, is that the decision-makers in the Election Commission grasp the technical limitations of data obfuscation far less than the staff who actually implement these policies. He told Medusa that, um, in his understanding, there is a certain gap in explaining that the people responsible for these decisions subscribe to defensive thinking. Why bother at all to make it harder for independent analysts to study Russia's election results? Well, he states that officials are merely delaying researchers' work so that the initial reports signal that the ruling party's strength and convince the country's elites to stay put. Everything originally from the preliminary data suggested that United Russia could have won the parliamentary majority without any falsification, it's the supermajority, the constitutional one, they needed to get for, you know, for the, their ability to do whatever they want, basically. But there was a weird contest here, because it's not enough for them to win. What they truly need is to be able to radically implement any changes that they want without any repercussions, really. See, the trick is, fear is the driving of the Election Commission's work. Fear that the political elite will bandwagon whatever voters wander. Theoretically, if these elections were normal, Spielkin states, if United Russia got 35% and KPRF got 40%, we could see a power shift from United Russia to KPRF, and the power elite do not want that. In this weekend's elections, after a handful of past experiments, Russia offered online ballots for the first time in multiple regions. Spielkin does not mince words when denouncing this new technology. He says, Electronic voting is an absolute evil, a black box that no one controls. It is impossible to study a million votes piled in a single heap. You can analyze an array of numbers, but we're presented only with a few parties' results and one turnout figure with electronic voting. There just are not enough details for any analysis. Now, Spielkin acknowledges that researchers can examine the time dynamics in the online voting's blockchain-based system, but very little can possibly be learned even from this approach. Spielkin ends his comment on how this online voting works by a simple phrase to which I kind of um, tend to agree. Electronic voting must die. Hello there, thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russensoft.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. 
That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well then, now that we have seen how exactly um, the electronic so-called voting happened, let's get back to the meat of the whole process and talk about the election results. That's going to be fun. With the results finalized, the Central Election Commission's tally showed United Russia with 49.82% of all party list votes, which amounts to 123 seats. Additionally, United Russia grabbed 199 of the State Duma's 225 single-mandate seats. In other words, United Russia's legislative presence will fall from 343 deputies to 324, although this is still very comfortably more than the 300 seats needed for a constitutional majority, which allows the party to change the nation's constitution without needing a coalition. Now, about a year ago, if you remember... Two senior Kremlin officials, State Council Presidential Administrator Head Alexander Karchev and Internal Policy Department Director Andrei Yarin, said at a meeting with United Russia members that they, the party should win another supermajority in September 2021, despite the group's plummeting approval ratings. When delivering these expectations, Karichev and Yarin cited the wishes of President Putin, who said repeatedly during Russia's campaign season that United Russia must maintain its position in the State Duma. Sergei Kirienko, the Putin administration's first deputy chief of staff and the Kremlin's domestic policy czar, uh, by now you could just call them czars at this point, I think it's fair enough, also specified targets for United Russia, reportedly calling on the party to win at least 45% of the election's votes, which, according to official results, it exceeded with excellence. Uh, obviously. I mean, I mean, did you really expect otherwise? Man, I know these elections happen only, you know, now and then, and they're not that common, but, and I feel like I'm, I'm obliged to cover them all, but it kind of feels dirty when I do, to be fair. Ugh. The ruling party's worst performance was in the Khabarovsk Krai, where the communists won more than a quarter of all votes, beating United Russia's 24%. Now, the region was previously expected to be a problem. Last year, after police arrested their governor, Sergei Furgal, who was a member of LDPR, and about whom we've spoken a lot in this show, 
namely because the locals at that point staged unprecedented protests for several months in a row, yeah, they showed some initiative. Now, when President Putin afterwards appointed LDPR State Duma Deputy Mikhail Degratyev, an outsider to Khabarovsk, to take over as governor, the decision sparked more demonstrations, even more so. But the movement eventually fizzled out, and Degratyev was able to win a majority of the votes in last weekend's gubernatorial contest, 57%, with a turnout of 44%. Again, these are the official data. United Russia also lost to KPRF in the Nenets Autonomous District, Yakutia, Komi, and the Ulyanovsk region. However, sources close to presidential administration say they are completely satisfied with the election's results. Now, when it came to celebrate the United Russia's returns, the two officials who headlined for the party on ballots, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and Foreign Affairs Minister Sergei Lavrov, didn't even attend Sunday's jamboree. Party officials never explained why, and a source later told Interfax that both men planned to forego their seats in the Duma and keep their ministerial positions. And this was, to be fair, again, no surprise to anyone. Months earlier, a source in the United Russia told my colleagues that neither Shoigu nor Lavrov ever intended to join the legislature. Putin himself remains in self-isolation. After, quote, several dozen people, unquote, in his entourage apparently tested positive for COVID-19. Ex-president and former prime minister Dmitry Medvedev, who is still United Russia's chairman, was absent on Sunday as well. Quote, he's sick with a bad cough. He couldn't be here with us today, but he asked that I convey his enormous gratitude to all of you. Andrei Turchak, a top party official, explained. Now, another source close to United Russia's leadership told the journalists that Medvedev will likely lose his role as the party's chairman at the next convention. Quote, they gradually ousted him from campaigning, he didn't make it to the top of the party's ballot list, he wasn't involved in the voter outreach, and he didn't even attend the party's last meeting with the president before elections. End quote. With all these absences, both medical and, uh, well, to be fair, somewhat unexplained, unless you take massive greed in account, the most prominent figures who actually showed up at United Russia's celebration were Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobyanin, who led the party's Moscow list, Komunarka Hospital Chief Physician Denis Prostenko, which was the third place in the party's federal list, and one Andrei Turchak, the secretary of the party's general council. Now, on to other parties. KPRF, LDPR, and Just Russia. Just in the sense of them being just, not merely Russia, to explain. The Communist Party had its best performance at all at the polls in a decade, winning nine single-mandate races and almost 19% of the party list votes, which is one and a half times more than in, back in 2016. This gives the Communists 57 deputies in the new state Duma, up from the 42 seats the party won five years ago when it had five deputies directly elected and won 13.3% of the party list vote. The commies haven't done so well since 2011, when the party grabbed 19.2% of the vote, back when, when proportional representation alone determined all the Duma seats. But this single-mandate system allows people to run um, separately from their parties, which allows United Russia to grab more votes as they, as a party, well, um, to be fair, no one really likes them. A source close to the presidential administration admitted to Medusa and other journalists that opinion polling put KPRF's approval rating with likely voters about 6 percentage points higher than the party ultimately drew in the elections, according to the final tally. Quote, Its rating started growing after federal officials removed Pavel Grudinin from the presidential elections, and then it kept growing until the end of campaigning. 
This year, the communists originally put Grudinin third on their federal party list. Then, Russia's Central Election Commission disqualified him, as with many other popular opposition candidates, for supposedly owing foreign assets. Now, there are other candidates who were so put away for um, illegally owing foreign stocks in various companies. The trick is, even Yandex, Russia's analog to Google, and Sberbank, Russia's largest central bank, are also considered foreign assets because of their offices not being in Russia and they are partially owned by foreign companies and investment funds. Which makes basically anyone ineligible in these elections in United Russia or KPRF or anywhere else because those are two most stable funds in which you could invest while in Russia, but not like the election committee or any kind of judicial apparatus actually cared about justice, you know, because those things, you know, really, really don't matter. Besides Grudinin, who actually campaigned for president three years ago, a little too charismatically, just so happening to be, more than a few colorful politicians belonging to the Communist Party were balloting and were candidates. Former Irkutsk senator Viktor Makhariev criticized Moscow's police response to opposition protests in 2019 and voted against the constitutional amendments that did expand Putin's presidency for another two terms. Sergei Levchenko became the first elected governor from KPRF after Putin reinstated direct gubernatorial elections in 2012, and Valery Rashkin, the popular head of KPRF's city committee in Moscow, they will also keep their seats in State Duma. The Communist Party boasts several rising stars as well, like Oleg Mikhailov. Um, whom we're going to be talking a lot in this show in the future, because he's the young and outspoken leader in the Komi Republic, who will now join the State Duma after winning the region's single mandate race. And, interestingly enough, a popular blogger named Nikolai Bondarenko, who I've been using as a source for a long time now, because he's outspoken, has a well-produced YouTube channel, and who actually responds to questions, and is actually work working with, you know, at least online and various media platforms, with other opposition parties, He's not really closely a communist, he just joined the party because of his popularity and because of seeing how he could get real odds of getting elected, which he now has. See, previously, he might have won a single mandate seat had United Russian nominated the Duma Speaker Vechlov Lodin in the same contest. However, KPRF ultimately moved Bondarenko to another race in one of Satov's more rural districts where he won. Quote, you could say they came to an understanding. Bondarenko is well-known among oppositionists around the country, and he's especially well-known in Saratov, but elections in the rural district and the internet. Now, back to Zhirinovsky and his LDPR party. That's always fun. Now, for LDPR, this was basically a nightmare weekend. They were left with almost half as much support as it had five years ago, down to 7.5% from 13.1% in 2016. This was the party's worst showing since the mid-1990s. Just Russia, meanwhile, performed roughly the same as it did in the last elections, rising slightly from 7% to 7.5%. In single-mandate districts, LDPR won just one race. Just Russia grabbed eight seats in those contexts. In the next Duma, LDPR's presence will plummet almost by half, falling from 39 deputies to only 21. Just Russia, on the other hand, added four seats to reach 27. Another source close to presidential administration told journalists, because yeah, we, we do have our sources, guys, <clears throat> that ballot counts in Russia's Far East re revealed early that both Russia and LDPR risked falling short of the state Duma's 5% threshold, which would have left the two parties without any proportional representation in the legislature. Quote, the usual partners in the Kremlin had to help out, out a bit, says Medusa's source, referring to either blatant election fraud or the mobilization of voters using the state's so-called administrative resources. 
An unpublished poll conducted a few days before the elections confirmed that LDPR and Just Russia could expect problems with voters and possibly fail to reach the 5% threshold. Quote, it happened because of the new parties. The Pensioners' Party had cleared positions, more colorful campaigning, and went after Just Russia's electorate. The communists and even the new people took votes away from the LDPR, explained Medusa's source close to the administration, because again, we actually have sources. And then there is the New People Party. Before 2005, electoral blocs made up of multiple parties or social movements could compete for seats in state Duma. But since 2007, after Russia converted its parliamentary elections to full party list voting, before revising the process again in 2016 to a mix of proportional representation and single-mandate constituencies, the state Duma has only ever had four party factions at one time. In Russia's latest parliamentary elections, a fifth group finally made the cut. New people. Alexei Nechayev's new people. Apart from the communists' impressive gains, the new people's success is perhaps the election's biggest sensation, if you could call it that way, though both outcomes were pretty much expected. With the Kremlin's very obvious assistance, Nechayev built a political force that collected nearly 3 million votes. The new people officially won 5.3% of Russia's party list votes, which gives them 13 seats in the next state Duma. As recently as July, polling indicated that the party lacked enough support to break the representation threshold, but the group's popularity soon began rising once again. Last year, the new people crossed the 5% barrier in legislative elections across four different regions. At the time, sources in the party attributed their success to energetic campaigning and efficiently mobilizing so-called nets of voters motivated by either material rewards or the endorsements of local public figures, whom the new people recruited with bunch of lobbying promises and tenders and insane amounts of corruption. Quote, someone from New People, again, spoke with journalists because there are a few honest people everywhere. We bet on television. There were positive segments about the party on TV and also stories about the New People in Komsomolskoye Pravda. First, we worked to build recognition, and then we focused on mobilizing the protest voter. With campaigning messages saying that we were going to make it, that we were taking votes away from United Russia, and that people could vote for us. The same individual denies that the Kremlin or any regional officials help lift the new people across the state Duma representation threshold. In some regions they interfered, and in some they didn't. The Kremlin didn't interfere. Another person in the party admitted that the local authorities in some regions helped the new people, though the source insists that the party saw good returns broadly, even where it had no active presence on the ground. Now, any other of Russia's other smaller political parties failed to qualify for any representation in state Duma. Yabloka, once the darling of the liberal opposition, won a miserable 1.3% of the party list votes. During this abysmal campaign, longtime Yabloka leader Grigory Yavlinsky actively discouraged votes from Alexei Navalny's supporters, well, which um, made basically everyone hate him more. Now, this smart vote from uh, Navalny's supporters, this thing played an impact in previous elections. This year, uh, not so much, really. The capacity of Navalny's strategic voting initiative to influence results loomed as one of the election's biggest unknowns. With the counting done, clarity about the smart vote remains elusive, but the official election results are not encouraging. The project endorsed oppositionists in all 225 single-mandate districts, and only 14 of these candidates won. Four of these winners reportedly coordinated their victories with the Kremlin and regional officials. Mikhail Shapov, with, from communists in Irkutsk, Sergei Leonov, LDPR in Smolensk, Alexey Didienko, LDPR in Tomsk, and Oleg Smolin, 
communists in Omsk. Seven of the ten single-mandate victors who had no arrangements with the presidential administration were from the Communist Party. The three remaining winners are just Russian members, Yelena Drapenko and Aletony Greshenkov and Anatoly Liskin. Everyone's basically super loyal. It's hard to say how big a role smart voting played in these victories. In Yakutia, Navalny's team endorsed the incumbent, just Russia's Fedor Tumusov, who reportedly enjoyed the authorities' support, while United Russia nominated a challenger with no political experience. In the end, however, voters elected a communist, one Peter Amosov. In several districts, smart vote clearly backed their own candidates. Leonid Volkov, one of the project's chief architects, by the way, acknowledged before the elections that this might happen. One instance of this was in Novosibirsk, where smart vote endorsed political strategist Igor Rukarintsev, nominated by the Greens, who finished third. It was the communist candidate Andrei Zhirnov who lost narrowly to United Russia's Oleg Ivansky. In Ryazan, meanwhile, Team Navalny told supporters to vote for Alexander Shirin from LDPR, but again, the commie candidate Evgeny Morozov came closest to beating United Russia's nominee. Political scientist Alexander Kinev addressed smart vote's impact outside major cities as minimal. But this also has to be, you know, accounted for since, well, um, and this sounds silly, but a wool company from Russia patented and ran a campaign like just the weeks before elections, renaming themselves smart voting and claiming that Navalny is interfringing on their patents. So uh, Russia's authorities demanded that Google and Apple remove the app from their app stores and just, you know, censor any and all searches related to it, which they actually, you know, did. This, um, this could have had an impact, and I believe it actually did. Then again, it's kind of funny to think that, um, you know, any real democratic changes from within are truly going to change the situation there in Russia. See, before electronic votes were added to the election results in Moscow, multiple candidates bearing smart votes endorsement led in-person voting. However, when electronic votes came in, yeah, all the candidates, a lot of them, lost their lead when these votes were added to the mix. Arguing that anomalies are totally full in Moscow's electronic results, a lot of politicians are now demanding the annulment of these votes, but we all know what's going to happen. However, for example, the communists have refused to recognize the capital's electronic vote tally, and the party's official leaders have threatened to protest the results. Those city officials promptly refused to issue a permit for any large demonstrations, obviously citing public safety concerns during the coronavirus pandemic. At the same time, many protests were already happening before, such as on the 18th of September, because everyone knew where this whole thing was going. So, as you can see, United Russia can totally change the state's constitution once again, if they so choose, and not much has really changed in that part. However, there are a bunch of new faces there, and, well, looks kind of strange on paper, but we'll see where this goes. Why is this important? Well, because the new candidates often try to make some radical changes, some new policy stuff, and we have some people who, well, actually might cause fuss on the Gosdom floor. If they do, we will, of course, be reporting. However, this is where I have to say goodbye to you today, because, well, my neck is already aching terribly, and I really want to lay down just now, and I have a lot of historical stuff to record because of all the catching up that I need to do. Now, once again, if uh, you want to follow us, you can check out Eastern underscore Border on Twitter, find us on Facebook, where we're the Eastern Border, or you can go to our homepage, theeasternborder.lv, where, please, please, 
click the donate button there or, or become our patron or leave a comment or just email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. There's a lot of catching up to do since, well, you know, kind of have to get rid of all of my bad luck. Thank you for listening. Happiness is mandatory. And do свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.